Hello, everybody, and thank you for joining this latest episode of the APGRD podcast. Um, I'm Claire, I'm one of the APGRD's archivists, and it's once again my pleasure to introduce two fantastic speakers for you today. Um, I'm feeling very fortunate to be joined here thanks to the magic of Zoom by writer and director Patrick Wang um, and his interlocutor classicist Mike Lippman from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. A couple of introductions for our speakers. Uh, Patrick was born into a Taiwanese family living in Texas and graduated from MIT with a degree in economics and music and theatre arts. And his CV really is that of a modern day Renaissance man um, spanning work on game theory, health policy and income inequality at high ranking American institutions, including the Federal Reserve Bank and the Harvard School of Public Health. Um, and that's before we even begin to consider his impressive writing, acting and directing work. His first film in the family was hailed an indie masterpiece by Roger Ebert, and he was named one of the 25 new faces of independent film by Filmmaker magazine. His 2015 film, The Grief of Others, premiered at South by Southwest, and his theatre credentials include directing the world premiere of Diane Arneson-Sfalian's translation of Medea. And he'll be speaking today with Mike, who is an Associate Professor of Practice and Lecturer at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, with a rich publication history across ancient drama, especially Aristophanes, ancient literary criticism and classical reception. He's editor-in-chief of the Greek and Roman performance journal Didascalia, to which Patrick himself contributed an article in 2019. Uh, more on that in just a moment. You can also catch Mike on homarathon.com, a non-stop virtual reading of the Homeric hymns, uh, which took place quite close to the time of recording. And it's also worth noting that we were very glad uh, to welcome Mike and a group of his students here in Oxford at the archive in the pre-lockdown days, um, where they were consulting us to collaborate and work on their own Antigone ebook, which is a really exciting project that we've been following. So today, Patrick and Mike are going to be discussing Patrick's 2018 two-part film, A Bread Factory, which centres around a community art centre of the same name in the fictional town of Checkford, New York. As the centre struggles to survive in a rapidly changing neighbourhood, we also see a local theatrical production mounted at the Bread Factory, Euripides Hecuba. Um, and this is perhaps the best place for me to hand over to our speakers today as they discuss the film, its relationship with the classical and many things besides. Thank you. Thank you, Claire. What a wonderful introduction. And Patrick, it is a delight to see you since last time I saw you, we only talked on the phone. Yeah, it's, uh, it's good to see your face again, Mike. Well, I guess I will take charge and say, well, obviously, Patrick, I love the movies and I actually just rewatched them seriously last few days and I have a whole ton of notes and I'm going to lob you. <laughs> They're some finished. Questions. I can't change anything about them. <laughs> They're done. No, 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 no. I don't mean notes that way. I mean like questions. But <laughs> no, no, I just noticed more this time because I was like, oh, shoot, I got the podcast. So in any event, I know that some of the questions I had, you already answered in that wonderful article you wrote for that brilliant journal. But so I'm going to send you some like, oh, talk about what we've already talked about. But I really want you to feel like you get across what is the big question, obviously, which is, so Greek stuff, theater company in New York, why? I mean, that's obviously the big question. So I'm going to let you talk now. And then okay. I'll, I'll do follow up questions. And then I have a couple of questions that we've never talked about. So I'm, I'm warning you, but I don't want to do it in like a put you on the spot jerky way. I, I thought about them. So, Gives me something to look forward to. 
Go ahead. All right. <laughs> yeah, that, that is a question I get, not just from, um, you know, people with a classics background, but from uh, a lot of people who are surprised. You know, these are, we have four hours of movie about this, um, this art center in upstate New York um, that is largely a comedy. And then you're sort of hit near the, it, it sort of accumulates, accumulates in, uh, in 20 minutes of a performance from Hecuba. You know, on the if you're if you're just hearing that synopsis, that sounds a bit odd. And even for people who watch it, it is unexpected, and they have many questions about it. Um, and I think they're wonderful questions. But they also, having gone through those four hours, the grooves of those four hours, the elements that prepared them for Hecuba. You know, it didn't come out of nowhere. There's a lot of steps along the way, and I can talk more about those that prepare you for it. And then. Also, the resonances of the play, um, the Greek play, to what's going on in that community become clearer and clearer to them as they think about it and as we talk about it. And so I think what sounds very odd on the surface um, starts to make a lot more sense. So one of the things that we do, you know, this is a, uh, I'll talk a little bit about sort of the writing origins of how it entered. So that's sort of how it enters for the audience. But for me personally, how it came to be in the script was, um, you know, I'm, I'm writing this story about this, uh, this art center and I just sort of imagine what happens there and the kind of people who pass through. And so there's different artists that comes through, you know, there's theater performers, there's a film director that comes through. And I thought, well, you know, they had this stage locally, they would put on some kind of show. And so the idea is that they regularly, the, the two women who, who run this place are, um, are theater lovers and they put on their own original productions. When it first entered, I didn't know if it was going to be any more than just a, a scene or two, you know, a glimpse, um, something to give you a sense of the range of what they do. Um, and that's how it started. So there was a short, you know, snippet from a Hecuba rehearsal. Um, nothing that gets you too deeply into the play. You hear a few lines, you see a little of the process of rehearsing. Just, I mean, because I liked the choice, can you tell everyone what the first scene that they're rehearsing is because as a classicist I was like oh, what a choice which I didn't notice the first time around well it's a pretty it's from the early in the play and it's sort of when uh, Polixena is just coming out of the house and there's been news Hecuba has gotten news that she's to be sacrificed and she is uh, figuring out how to break this news Polixena, or, or even just digesting the news herself but then communicating with her daughter um, you know, who's going to be the object of the sacrifice. And it, it sounds a lot heavier than it is just because we don't get the lead up necessarily to that. So the first time we hear it, it's just sort of the daughter coming out, stepping out. It's what's going on. Um, and I feel like that's a, that's a nice place to start, you know, a, a, a dive into a, maybe a new play people don't know and a new process is what's going on. Um, and so I like that scene because it's sort of we're, we're the, we're, we as the audience share Blixena's perspective in that. Um, and it's just that little fragment when they first start, when we see them in the first rehearsal. And then what happens is that their work in the film, the story is that they're working from a translation from a local translator um, who's very excited to have uh, her play on and has some of the... Uh, one of the wonderful quirks of, um, of somebody who's, who's sort of very new and excited um, about the process and very involved in, um, in the rehearsals. And the script we use is uh, Diane Arnson's Farlene's um, translation, 
So she is not a newcomer to translation. And her really, and we can talk more about this later, but her wonderful translation is a big part of, I think, why the long passage succeeds in the end. But yeah, the translator in the film sort of gives us a little plot synopsis at one of the rehearsals. And so that's another way we kind of move it forward. And so that by the time we get to the performance, you've kind of heard the sketches of a plot, you know, maybe four or five times, and you're kind of ready uh, to follow along. Okay, I have two questions. One set up, one actually it's a real, real serious question, so I hope I'm not gonna be a jerk. And I'm sure the classicists in the world will really like the translator on the stage. Like there's like almost in jokes and I'm sure it is not based on Diane because you know, the character is more intrusive in the rehearsal, but I know not to do that as when I translate, but where did you come up with your model of the translator? I assume it is not Diane. <laughs> It, it, it definitely is not Diane, and I had to remind her of that before I gave her the script to look at. Um, but I think that, you know, it comes from a lot of the, the wonderful energy of a lot of people in a community theater. And I think my model is more community theater, which is not, it, and, and you'll see in my perspective of the, the show they actually put on, my perspective is, is not condescending towards them. I does not think any less of them compared to any other kind of theater. I actually think it's much more wonderful in that it's open. Trappings of professionalism and career and, and commerce are, that, that plague a lot of other, you know, that weigh on a lot of other theater, they have freedom from, and they get to explore. You know, this woman actually gets to put on her own translation and gets to interact with not just the actors, but the director, gets to be a part of talking to the director. And, and she does interject more and I think it's just because she doesn't know any better. And I think that's one wonderful thing about what comes out of a lot of community theater is sometimes people don't know any better and good things can come out of that. Yeah, and I noticed, this is one of the things I noticed, she starts as a more comic figure. And then at the end, when she's called the, you know, the Euripides translator of her generation, <laughs> she kind of has had a really strong arc through the two movies that I was like, oh, you started a comic kind of, you know, like, ah, oh, translators, you know how those Rocky classicists are but I really liked her ending strong dignity. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, it almost fits with Euripides because Euripides has these shards of comedy that can be yeah. so striking <laughs> in the middle of this very, you know, um, dark and, and deep piece. So she has that role to kind of balance with the content of the play that's very nice, but it never undercuts either her scholarship her genuine love for the play and, and, and connection with these characters. And I think it puts in, you know, there's a sort of outside character that you may not notice um, as clearly as the actual play, but I wrote into the, um, Cassandra notably is not in Hecuba, but I wrote a Cassandra figure into the film. And so there's another observer at the rehearsals um, and her name is simply Sandra. And she is a comic figure. And I thought that that's very interesting for, you know, what I find very interesting about Cassandra is that she's dismissed, not necessarily why, but that she's dismissed. And I thought that one of the ways we dismiss people is when we laugh at them. And so she does end up prophesying some certain things in the film that happen but we don't think much of it. And we kind of dismiss her oddities and the strange utterances that come out of her uh, because she's sort of a comic figure. So she and Elsa, the translator, um, have these elements of comedy associated with them, 
but real depth and, and meaning kind of beyond the surface. And this makes me feel awkward to say this, but I'm gonna have to correct you about your own film. I'm sorry. I just looked at my art, the article you wrote and the first scene, and I just was rewatching it and thought like, oh, cool. The first scene in the second movie is the Polixena, but the first scene in the first uh, movie- Talking about polymester and Hector. Yes, so <laughs> I set you up and then you, you, know, you kind of got the answer wrong, which I was like, oh, I don't have to tell him. That's but right. You did write it. So I thought it was just great that you started with the end. Yes, that, you know, that, that is one of the reasons you're right, that that's why it slipped my mind is that that is out of order. So yeah. there's a whole progression of rehearsal. And I, I usually, that is obviously a rehearsal. It's very interesting because it's a first read. It's a first read with very experienced actors who have worked together before. And so the nature of that rehearsal is very different than everything else. It almost is like a performance. And you're right, it, it puts Polymester and Hecuba up front. It is nice to start from that one. Yeah, that really does throw you into the deep end. And you're suddenly very involved in this scene that it's largely um, stichomythia between these two characters. So it's a very you know, specialized kind of scene in the poetry also. And uh, that one works on the back of two extraordinary actors. And one of the things that I also tried to do in my, just generally in the film is balance out, you know, there's a lot of uh, snippets and shards of uh, scenes. And so a lot of people were getting to know very quickly at the beginning of A Bread Factory part one, but then we need some times when we can just live in a scene for a little longer, get some roots. And that was one of those opportunities that kind of presented itself. It's like, ah, oh, yeah, let's live with these two wonderful actors. There's a lot of different things we start to learn and get used to in that. We get to learn the space, uh, these people. And then there's certain technical elements of the film that start to get introduced there too. For example, there's a long zoom that takes us through a range of perspectives. It's very simple. We start sort of in the audience, seeing a lot of the seats, seeing people in the audience, and then we end up almost on, I think it's a pretty uh, close up two shot, a medium close up of the two actors, maybe even getting it close enough into a single for one of them at the end. And that is, uh, that sort of says a little something about the range of perspectives I'd like to present, you know, that, that's the range of what I'd like to cover in these people's lives and in the, in the play throughout these films. And I just want to clarify for the audience having seen the movie, the words long zoom might scar us all, but it's not the long zoom that we've all been suffering for a year. You know, that's very interesting you bring that up and I don't know how much interest this will be to classicists, but let's talk about it anyway. You know, the zoom is a very interesting thing for, for film because it was invented at a certain point in time and people got so excited about it and they used it and they used it in this, you know, intensely in this period of time and then shortly after the Steadicam was invented, that it sort of bought you a lot of the distance you could get with the Zoom. You could suddenly move in in a very different way and in a much more flexible way. And suddenly the, the Zoom fell out of favor. And because it was so heavily used in a period of time and then so quickly fell out of favor, it's sort of seen as a very period device or a genre device. And when I talked to my cinematographer about this, 
we were talking about, you know, I, I told him, I, I had this feeling we, we used the Zoom. And he said, you know, in my whole career, there have been a number of times when, you know, you were presented with a problem and I propose, let's, uh, you know, a solution is a Zoom. And he said, exactly zero times in my career has anyone accepted that because of the weight that comes with it of this identification with a very specific style and period of time. And I think that it becomes very powerful uh, if we use it in, you know, we can, we can make up how we use it. We don't have to use it in those older ways. Our ways are a little more subtle and it has to do with how we see. And that's very important, especially when we present the theater because we wanna present a how we see that gives it theatrical life uh, without being sort of just that backstage, we see pieces of the theater uh, sort of a, a film theater that we've already seen. We need to find a new way to see uh, theater and this particular kind of theater and the Zoom is a big part of that. All right, I have a question for you to just go back to the way you kind of fold the Hecuba into the movies. What sort of, or how do you address the fact that you have a wide range of audience members, some of whom are totally what's a Hecuba, and some of whom are going to watch it, and maybe some of our viewers will go in saying, oh, shoot, I know that scene. Did you keep that in mind throughout? Well, I think that in some ways, my perspective for the audience is almost always my own, in that I don't think they're any smarter or, or less smart than me. But I do, but, and as somebody who has himself come to Hecuba fairly recently, I remember that path very well. I remember the things that confused me and I remember the things that really drew me in. So I think that that helps. Like I said, we, we prepared certain things in the, in the lead up to it so that people were ready for it. Some people will be ready for it, an extended uh, scene of Hecuba. Um, I think that there are also two things that really help. One is that when we do get into the extended sections, several of them are very, they build really beautifully. The monologues build, you know, that they have that beautiful argumentative build, that legal poetry that the, that the Greeks did so well as to playing out their case, as well as deep emotions. You know, I, I feel like there is in a lot of um, Euripides plays, uh, there is, you know, there's maybe like 20, 30% where they, they, it's sort of just hand-waving at this feeling, that feeling, this tragedy, that tragedy. And then there's maybe like uh, somewhere in there, there's a 20, 30% that is, okay, we're really gonna dive into one of these ideas. We're really gonna dive into what it means that my life was as a princess and with all these possibilities in my life, not just saying that as a sentence, I'm gonna dive into it as a monologue. And I think that that depth helps people I think it does too. Both those things you mentioned, it helps the people in who know nothing about Hecuba. And I think that that is really our contribution to classical performance in that I think you'll see a kind of performance in this that you don't have to agree is the way things should be, but I believe is something you don't see and is the reason I wanted to do it. It is a connection, a modern connection with the psychology of the character and the subtext that I think is usually not believed to be there or is performed in such a style that there's no space 
for this kind of psychological understanding. And so I wanted to put that there. And I think that, like I said, it's what leads people in that know nothing. And it's maybe what's new for people who have seen a lot. Do you see why, even though there is a Polydorus figure from before the movie begins, but do you see why I, reading into it on some level, thought Max or Simon had to die? Because I'm, I've got yeah. all this Hecuba baggage. I mean, of course I knew because I'd seen it before, but I was as I'm rewatching it, I thought, oh, like, you know, maybe Simon's gonna die, you know, because he's Polydorus-ish in a way. And, and in a way he does. I mean, the, there is not as much literal death <laughs> at the bread factory as there, you know, there are, uh, there is in Hecuba, but there is, there is a kind of war they're fighting. Um, you know, the, the resonance for me with the thematic material in the larger film is that, you know, these are two women who have for 40 years been running this place and they're fighting this battle against a town that is changing against this sort of uh, art center, this flashy new art center that's soaking up the funding down the street. They feel defeated and they feel powerless more and more so as it goes along. And there's the question of what are you left with? What can you do? And I think like that to me that resonates with a lot of the Trojan women. I think that what is very interesting in Hecuba as opposed to a lot of the other, you know, as opposed to Andromache, uh, Trojan women, is that she actually does something and is quite dramatic. She finds a power in this seeming powerlessness. Um, and I thought that that was quite a thing. Um, no, I really like that because that was one of the questions I wrote at the beginning when, you know, I thought, why Hecuba and not Trojan women? And then mm -hmm. I really liked the conversation where the two, where, where Dorothea and Greta are talking about vengeance. Like that scene itself, which is of course not in the play, Euripides could have written that. I really liked their, well, would you like to tell everyone about the scene that I'm alluding to? Yeah, well, the, the scene you're talking about is very funny because um, Tyne Daly, uh, who plays Dorothea, that's the scene where while we were see, while we were shooting, while she's watching the movie, she's like, I don't understand why this scene is here. <laughs> and it's sort of, you know, the director Dorothea talking to um, to Greta, the actress playing Hecuba, about the play in the way that I think long-term theater couples may recognize, but also director actors will recognize that there's a tension. You have different roles to play and you have different perspectives to bring on this. And one of the very interesting things that um, they have to decide is, you know, they're looking at very different fates for uh, their children in terms of their male children and their female children. And that disturbs um, Greta. She's like, well, does she care more about, about Polydorus than she does about, about Polyxena? And there is, obviously there's a historical reason why that might be, but they as theater practitioners in the present day have to think about what that means that they do this. Um, and she as an actress needs to think about, you know, that may be what it seems on the surface, but what else may be going on? And so they have a long discussions to try to get at that. It's not sure that they, you know, they then they talk through some of the, and this is maybe the part that you're thinking of is a little like Euripides, is that they, they think through this logic, they challenge each other. Um, it is not written in the stick of mythia, but <laughs> it does have this back and forth pretty equal exchange between them. And I think that that's very much part of the process of when we're, when we're trying to decide what does this mean for us now, 
it's something we have to work through. It's not set. And that's part of the excitement. It's part of the pain sometimes. But yeah, I, I do think it's very nice. They challenge each other um, and they try to figure out what do these different figures mean. Yeah, it really struck me as a, you know, a, a stereotypical Euripidean scene where two characters sort of take a timeout and argue, and it really doesn't necessarily move the plot forward, but the Greeks would have been like, yeah, let's just sear both sides, and then we just keep going. Like the trial of, in, in the Trojan women, the, the trial of Helen. It was just like, yeah, all right, that's not going to change what's going to happen, but I really liked it, and I, I really liked the question of why didn't she take revenge with the same question being like, how? And it was kind of a nice aporia, and I really, I, I really like that scene. Yeah, so. it is, and it's a, you know, it's a question that, you know, I, I still turn over, you know, because you, you look at the, the people that move in and out of uh, Hecuba's interactions. I know that a number of people have problems with what Hecuba does at the end, and you know, to that certain people have taken that away in, in their telling of the story. And, and not just recently, you know, I think that the, there were a number of Roman playwrights who rewrote the, the blinding of Polymester to be Polydorus's doing. It's a, it's a very interesting question that I, I, I'm very impressed by how I can keep, after seeing this movie so long, working on it so long, knowing the play well, you know, when I reread it for, for our talk today, it, it still astounds me how much is there and how much there is left to think about, yeah. Okay, here's a new question that we have never talked about that came up the other day. I was thinking, this this latest rewatch, how much obviously throughout we're meta-theatering, right? I mean, you've got a movie about making a play and then there's all sorts of, we, my, my favorite being the tap dancing uh, cafe. There's all sorts of you know, breaking of reality Mm -hmm. But I was thinking, do you see that as a Euripidean thing? It is traditionally a Euripidean thing, but did you see any connect between your metatheatrical approach and the Greeks? You know, I, a lot of people have, you know, commented on the films as the, what happens in part two, you know, you talked about there's tap dancing, there's sort of singing tourists that come into town and they tear at the fabric of the movie sort of the way these forces in the town kind of tear at the community. And I, I like that, but I, a lot of people talk about that as, oh, you know, the art is spilling over from the stage onto, you know, into the streets. And I never really saw it that way. <laughs> um, <laughs> because first of all, because that's not the art that was on the stage. I see it as just, these are needs of expression. Like this is, one of the ways I can, you know, think about gentrifying, think about tourism, you know, without, you know, dismissing these characters is I need ways to see them as still human. And the art they gave in, they engage in to need to express themselves keeps them human for me. I think the way it may relate to Euripides, and I, I start to feel this more, you know, as I read more of the plays, the range is quite important the different devices, you know, like you said, that you go into Stichomythia in this point, that you have a song here, that you have, you know, this discussion, this type of discussion here, that you have the messengers, you know, all these different formulations are quite important to establish a range of expression, um, that you don't just use one mode. And I think that that's what it ends up being, is there's just all these people that need to express themselves 
I think that I use a whole range of tools like Euripides uses, um, but I wasn't necessarily thinking of that as sort of like that it's a language of the stage that is um, spilling over. Maybe it's more of a justification for why the language of the stage is useful, is that it can, you know, it's this very fundamental thing to express. Um, and we just happen to do it on the stage. And that brings me to my next now surprise question to you that I've never asked before. So I was thinking about the role of the bread factory, the place in the town. And then I thought, huh, such is theater to Athens. All the town people involved in the nice yeah. final scene that I don't want to spoil, but people in are involved. But, you know, the bread factory is, it seems pretty Athenian from where I'm sitting. Do you I, agree with that statement? I, I think I, I've read a number of writers who've, who've written about it much better than I will answer the question for you. But yes, on a, on a very large scale, this is a stage where the community goes to see itself and play certain roles out before itself. I think that that is, it, that is a very broad role of it. I particularly like a different, so maybe a, a little um, spin on that that's much more modest, but that also gets us to, um, to Hecuba, which is there's a moment in the film where there is just this teenager, this lovesick teenager, has just had his heart broken. And, you know, he's, he's a high school kid. He has an internship at the local paper, but he, he doesn't have that much else that's really defined his endeavors or his life. And you know, he's heartbroken after losing, losing the girl he loves and he's sitting in, in this theater space kind of hiding out, remembering uh, his old girlfriend's performance as she was an actress. And uh, Dorothea, the woman who directs these plays, runs this place, sees him there and uses gets him on, you know, talks to him, gets him on his feet to perform this opening monologue of Polydorus's to read it, just read it from the script. He's not an actor. He says as much, you know, in their interaction. He's, he's resistant to it, he doesn't really want to, but he does. There's nobody there except for her and him uh, and Sandra. <laughs> and uh, what this does for him with no grand designs, it, you know, it's not that kind of movie where he reads this, discovers he's an actor, and that's what he really wants to do, and that be, and he becomes this, you know, the greatest actor of his generation. He may never get on stage again, but what this monologue lets him do is come out of himself, get out of his own head. Um, yeah, and I thought he did a good job. He, the did. character and the actor, when exactly. he did. Exactly, it, it's a very hard thing to both bring out a lot in the monologue and yet not seem like it's a polished performance, you know, to actually make it convincing as a first read. But I think it's what theater, you know, the, the broader thing we may talk about for the community, it's what it lets, you know, each individual do, which is, you know, to come out of ourselves. So, you know, the Greeks may be watching, but it's about Thebes, so it's not really us, you know. And at the same time, to echo the things that should be on our mind, the issues of, you know, war, of, of how to treat, others in war, the, who is really the enemy, things like that. For him too, it's sort of, it's these tragedies that Polydorus is feeling and this great sense of loss that he is feeling in his love and his life. But at the same time, it is and it's not him. And I think that that simultaneity is what lets him see. Okay, and that brings me to another question that has just the world has changed since I last saw or you finished the film, as we both know. 
I, it, what really came out to me, you know, and I like to, when I watch movies now, I'm just like, how'd that age? In this case, your movie has arguably changed rather a lot in the East versus West side of it, given events of the last year or two. And I was thinking a lot about the war about classics, like who owns it and, you know, the ridiculous alt-right in America. And I know you in Britain, you know, you guys have your own insanity about who's class, important, self-important classicists. So in any event, I was thinking now, given, and of course, you know, I'm sure I don't have to tell you, Patrick, about America's current stresses. So the classics in the middle of that current culture war, and then now in the bread factory, we have a an east-west argument. Yeah. So I, what do you think? I think on those two fronts, I think the, the so for those who haven't seen the film yet, China is a sort of a political football in this um, film in that these, these performance artists that are coming to town are from China and that they are um, sort of this internationalism to art and corporate, international corporatization of art is a big theme. And it's complicated in the film the same way I think it is complicated now. It's that there's a desire to want to reduce into vil villains and heroes, you know, villains and people who cannot be criticized. And I think that those problems are in the film. For example, these people are not from the community, but it's a fine line between that and a xenophobia. And you see that. So it's, it's a question of how can we criticize while, you know, while maintaining that balance. And it's just that things are complicated, that it's not a simple story. And it's not that we just have to correct in this one or two lines. And I think that that still stays relevant. You know, for me, who saw this you know, growing up with Japan, and I mentioned to that in the film, you know, it's just sort of China was the next one for me. I remember in film, there was a whole lot of discussion about financing from China without anyone understanding what that meant for a long time. It's still the same now in, in that we can ask detailed critical questions without sort of descending into the more baser elements of our nature. Um, and I think that that's a, a necessary balance and that one and a complexity I try to communicate in the film. Now as to the classics, I think that I, I probably have thought about this much less than you and much less than anyone who's listening and to me, it's just much more personal. I, I look for things in the classics I connect with. If there's something for me, that's great. If there's not, I may try to learn it if people try to convince me that there's something there. But to me, it's just very immediate. And, I, and if I find something I love, I wanna echo it. Um, so I, I, I think it's also like China, not a monolith. There's a lot I disagree with. There's a lot that's not for me. I'm not trying to disagree it out of existence. I would, I would like to you know, create a little space where what echoes with me can uh, really live and thrive. Yeah, and I did like that one guy who does the really strong defense of <laughs> the guy, the author. But I, I, I thought too that, you're, that there's a lot of your movie that's like a, a, a pay on to you know, what I would call not just the classics Greek and Rome, but old school literature. So classics in the not Greek and Rome sense. I don't catch all the Chekhov references. I just know you were making them. But 
you know, there's just like a lot of like, oh, and, and, and this sort of approach to it is not, you know, the canon is the only way, but there was right. definitely a, uh, a romantic, a romanticizing, I think in the true sense of the word of old stuff. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that's very true. And it is very, it's very textbook neoclassical, right? And it's, um, and maybe the way it more immediately people can see is that there's a lot of mentorship. There's a lot of passing down. You know, people have noticed that, you know, usually in modern day film, you have a lot of people in middle age, sort of late adulthood to middle age is a, is a lot of the cast for a lot of films. And this film, you have a lot of young people and you have a lot of early old people. <laughs> and the, what passes between them and their interactions and the value of their interactions is a big part of the film. And it's a big part of sort of how I have learned things in life as a benefit of many people who have taught me to the, to the extent that my teachers have been well studied in these other things that has been passed to me. And Patrick, I just have to say this because, you know, I'll just assume that you know that what I'm about to say because your ancient Greek is flawless. But I was really thinking about the verb paizo a lot, y'all who know Greek, you know, to play, but also based on the word for child and it's connected to to teach and the Greeks would get the pun and you get the pun yeah. but the, you know the point is, is that I know I can see it from what you just said um, no, that, I think that's a beautiful way to pull all the strands together there is a play um, everyone is engaged in it and it is what's most vital is what what the younger generation takes from it yeah and that's what I thought was so cool what you're talking about this generation I would say it Simon was the big tragedy for me like I wanted him. I hope he comes back after. Here was here's my official final question. So Hecuba, as I'm sure anyone listening knows, is a tragedy. And you know, I was reading some of your stuff, and you say it's comedy. And I was just thinking about the Hecuba figures, which I guess we would both agree there are many Hecuba figures, arguably across the board. So can you talk a little bit about the Hecuba figures who you know, and how they line up with the Hecuba. Yeah, I, I think that it's very interesting the way you ask that question, because it is, it tends not to be the way I arrive at my decisions, either in writing or in making a film, which is, you know, for example, there are the symbolists that will, you know, in the, you know, red represents this and blue represents this. And I tend not to think in terms of one-to-one -one correspondence. I did when I was a younger writer, you know, then you want your little decoder ring and you want to be very clever about these things. Then a middle-aged brain arrives and you realize that certain patterns, they're detected somewhere in the background there. And you may ease their flow into uh, the work, but you don't, you're not concerned about making these clear associations. And so I think one of the reasons Hecuba became a bigger, bigger part of the film is that as I was choosing passages, I just felt resonances that were just so deep and wonderful to have. And that suddenly expand the palette of the world you're talking about. You know, sort of the, the way if you have, you know, a bunch of kids and then you add an 80 year old, you've expanded the palette of the world. Here, you expand the palette quite a bit of what are we talking about? So 
I agree with you that the setup is there for all of these types of correspondences and resonances and lessons um, and parallels between these things. But I never thought of that as I was creating. I pick up on it as I watch, the same way you're saying you pick up on it and watch. I pick up on it more and more. So maybe the more explicit part of my mind is, is, um, is catching up to the middle-aged part of my mind that sort of <laughs> pulled these things together and let them be. But yeah, one of the great parts of making a film is learning all about it afterwards through the insights of others. I was thinking there's a Euripides line in some play, I can't remember which one, but talking about the magnet theory that goes from the inspiration to the author, to the actor, you know, like, so in your case, you have the translator to the actor to you. It's like all this well, you know, long insight. Let me add a little coda, which is that one of the reasons I think that there is so much space in Greek verse drama is because of its form. There's, there's something crystalline about how the syllables sit in relationship that gives you space. And I try to create films the same way in that I try to maintain certain spaces. And I think those spaces are what let many different ideas bloom as opposed to this one idea the filmmaker has. And so maybe I take my lesson from why I think that they're so versatile uh, these words of Euripides. Um, and I try to apply that to the aesthetics of the film and, and maintain these spaces where we can have personal resonances and interpretations. So here's my final question. Final, final, but no, that was the final question before it was the one that I wanted. So I hear you're talking about or thinking about Augustus. I am fascinated with Augustus, um, you know, both in the history of that time and in just dramatic treatment. It's very interesting. There's a lot of dramatic treatment up to the assassination of Caesar. Um, there's sort of a lot um, later in the imperial period, but in this very key time um, in Roman history, there's very limited dramatization in what I find is deeply dramatic moment, a very culturally polyphonic moment um, and many different possibilities that the world can um, directions the world can go. And so, yes, I, I am absolutely fascinated with the Augustan era. I think it will take me a long time to catch up with, with my interest, with, um, with sort of the cultural appetite I have for this time period. Um, but I think what will come out of it is a more extended version of drama, even than a bread factor, even than four hours of film um, to really explore what I, I find so captivating about this time. Well, I look forward to it. So it'll take me that long to learn Latin also. <laughs> you can get a translator. If I learned anything <laughs> from a bread factory, that works. That's true. <laughs> thank you so much, uh, Patrick, for taking the time to discuss the film with us today. Um, and thank you, Mike, as well, for posing such, such interesting questions. I'm also you. very intrigued to hear about that uh, late Republican Augustan exploration, which may be on the horizon. We'll have to uh, keep in touch about that. So if our listeners would like to find out more about Patrick and his work, you can follow him on Twitter. His handle is at Wang on the web. Um, and we'd also recommend checking out abreadfactory.com where you can watch the trailer for the film and out more about screenings. Um, we understand there's whispers of a UK release coming up shortly. So British listeners may want to watch this space as well. But yes, thank you so much to both of you for a fantastic episode.